When I was born, or indeed, when you were born, for that matter, we had no idea what was happening at all. No one, as far as I know, had prepared us for what was happening. I I didn't get an email. But there was probably a midwife present, a highly qualified nurse who had studied in detail the process of birth and who knew exactly what was going on. Paul writes... And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Last week, we looked at the idea of people being predestined by God for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. This week, we look at the next phrase, he also called. What does it mean that God calls? How does he do that? And the reason that we're attending to this lesson today is that today we're continuing a series of sermons, a doctrinal sermon series, a sermon series looking at the doctrines of applied redemption. As Christians, We know that we are God's saved people and that he has saved us. Sometimes we ask about others, saying, is that person saved? In this series of sermons, we're not primarily looking at redemption or salvation. We're not looking at how God saved the world through a kid born in a shed, lived and suffered among us, dead on a cross, raised on the third day, 2,000 years ago on the other side of the world. We're not primarily looking at that. Rather, we are looking at the whole process of how we become Christians, how God applies those ancient things afresh in me and in you, and, and, and how we will continue to do that in each subsequent generation. So we'll be looking at Conversion, calling, regeneration, faith and repentance, Holy Spirit baptism, justification, adoption, etc., etc., etc. And you might be wondering, why do we need to know about this? Well, because when people ask us about Jesus, they usually begin by asking us about our faith, about your faith about my faith, about how it was, why are you a Christian? How did you become a Christian? But even though we've experienced these things, we often don't really understand them or know how to talk about them. Just because it has happened to us doesn't mean we understand the process. Just because I was born that doesn't qualify me as an obstetrician. Just because we've been born again doesn't qualify us necessarily as spiritual midwives. But as God's representatives, as midwives with Christ, he is the head midwife. Us as 
imitators of him. We need to know. In fact, when Christians misunderstand the process, when we, when we read our own experience back into the Bible without understanding the Bible's explanation for our experience, when we do that, we actually generally misrepresent the gospel. So this whole series of sermons arms us with a better understanding of the birth process, um, how people become Christians. And so today, we'll be looking at that idea called calling, or sometimes it's called effective calling. Uh, Last week, many are called, but few are chosen. Indeed, many people hear the gospel message and don't respond, or respond only so much as to reject, but some do accept the gospel. Calling, or effective calling, is quite simply the idea that God the Father, by means of a message presented by a human preacher, in turn speaking in the power of the Holy Spirit, summons or calls people into fellowship with him through faith in Jesus Christ, God the Son. Calling, more simply put, is the idea that occasionally people hear God speaking to them very, very directly whilst in fact they're listening to a gospel presentation so that they become a Christian and later, perhaps indeed even forgetting the name of the person they were listening to, yet and nevertheless confess, Jesus spoke to me. And in looking at this topic of calling today, we will consider the following questions. Firstly, is calling a biblical way of understanding conversion? Secondly, why does God use human speakers? Thirdly, what makes a gospel presentation a gospel presentation? So then, first, is our definition of calling a biblically correct way of understanding what happens to a person when they come to faith in Jesus Christ? And the answer, briefly, is yes. Jesus said, no one can can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at that last day. And when, for example, Lydia heard the gospel message, Acts 16, verse 14, the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Sure, Paul had to talk, but it was the Lord who was at work. Yes, effective calling is an entirely biblical way of understanding conversion, and it calls us This thing calls us to prayer. So then, secondly, why does God use human speakers? Um, The importance of this question may not be immediately obvious. I mean, if you've been a Christian a long time, you kind of just take it for granted. But actually, if you're not a Christian and your friend says to you, hey, why don't you come with me to hear this great visiting evangelist, Um, in order that you might hear a message from God, 
You, you, and you, you're not a church person, you're not a Christian, you may well find yourself thinking, well, if the message really is from God, why doesn't he just write it in the sky? I mean, if he did that, if he revealed himself unequivocally, well, that would just settle the question in an instant, wouldn't it? Why doesn't God do that? If this is supposed to be a message from God, and God's all-powerful, I don't understand why he has to use this dodgy-looking guy in a suit and tie with an American accent. Why does God use people? Well, biblically, actually, God uses all kinds of means in order to present, a, a, a present his message and to reveal himself. Um, speaking to Moses from within a burning bush, appearing through angelic messengers to many. Then there's dreams and visions, a disembodied hand writing on a wall. And Jesus continues to regularly reveal himself to people in dreams and visions. But essentially what's normal, both in Bible times right up until today, what's normal, what's usual, is for God to make his voice heard through human messengers. And the reason for this, I think we can safely assume, is that humanity was created to represent God, created in his image and likeness, Genesis 1, 26 to 28. And although that aim and goal was jeopardized and distorted by sin, the goal is perfectly, perfectly realized in the man Jesus of Nazareth, and we continue his ministry. Copying Jesus is our job. The man through whom we meet God. Therefore, the normal and usual way for human beings to learn about God is through human beings who were created in order to represent him. And this means that wonderfully, and perhaps apparently paradoxically, when people come to faith in Christ, it is because they have listened to a human being, but they have heard the voice of God, the voice of God that is calling them. And again, this truth involves us, that we can all pray, not only that God will speak to those uh, who we love and who have not yet um, uh, come to faith in Jesus Christ, we pray that they will come to faith in Jesus Christ, but indeed, we pray that he might speak to them through us. That's an essential part of the process for us to pray over and pray about. Yes, may they come to faith in Christ, but may they hear God calling them by name, through us. If we want people to come to faith in Jesus Christ, Christ, we pray that God might call them, that they might hear his voice as they listen to us. And so we pray for them, as well as, of course, we, we, we pray something and we do something. We invite them to church or to hear a visiting evangelist or we arrange an alpha course and invite them to dinner or we offer and ask if they would like to read the Bible with us one-on-one or indeed we might give them a copy of the New Testament, the teaching and testimony of the apostles. And if that might be so, if, if, if we... If we understand these things, then we also need to know, thirdly, what makes a gospel presentation a gospel presentation? 
What is the gospel? Well, if you look in your Bible, and particularly in the New Testament, you'll see the word gospel occurs very, very frequently, around 100 times, I think. It's a common word. The English word gospel comes from an Anglo-Saxon term, Godspell, uh, which means good story. And that's a pretty good translation of the Greek word euangelion, which means literally you, good, angelion, message, the good message. In Greco-Roman culture, the word had this flavor of official announcement, a word that had authority to it. Euangelion is a noun. The corresponding verb, uh, euangelizio, um, may be translated to evangelize, or often in our Bibles, to preach the gospel. Um, And there are a vast number of gospel pronouncements in the New Testament. Both Jesus and John the Baptist proclaimed, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the euangelion, the gospel, the good news. John the Beloved, for God so loved the world, that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Peter preached, Acts 2, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And Paul writes to the Corinthians, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers um, and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Not a normal birth for Paul, but he was born. The gospel is the message about Jesus, whether the whole message in its fullest detail or an abbreviated summary or overview. The gospel is the message about Jesus of Nazareth, that salvation is found in no one else, that when we put our faith in him, we have forgiveness of sins, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and the sure hope of eternal life. And the gospel is much, much more. Now, every single aspect 
of the gospel message has, of course, been the focus of controversy, challenge, and dispute at some point or another. And in the light of that, I'd like to focus just on two areas where the gospel message is routinely challenged in our day and age. And again, these are things that we need to know and understand in order that we might have an answer for the one who asks us about the hope that we have. Firstly, the gospel is a message that calls for a personal response. To use the language of our day and culture, the gospel message is an invitation for each individual human being to have their own intimate, personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, his Son, in the power of the Holy Spirit. To be friends with Jesus. The gospel is an invitation to know God personally, as we would say, in contrast to simply knowing about God in some purely abstract or intellectual way. Sitting here in church today, um, we, we might take that idea for granted. We might forget how scandalous and difficult that idea is to non-Christians. I've seen journalists on television ridicule public figures who were Christian, saying things like, he thinks he has his own personal relationship with Jesus, as though no further evidence of insanity or gullibility was required. And in conversation, in every conversation that I've had with people of other faiths, Muslim, Baha'i, Hindu, atheist, Buddhist, the, the idea, when we get to the idea that I know God personally, that's always been a stumbling block. Either an incomprehensible idea or a deeply repugnant one. But it's always a scandal. Um, in, in our age, people love the idea that the different world's religions are like blind philosophers surrounding an elephant. You, you may have heard this analogy before. Um, as they each reach out to examine with their hands different parts of the elephant, they come to different conclusions about what the elephant is like. But, says the wisdom of our world, all it amounts to is just different insights into the same elephant. Oh, yeah, different insights, but it's the same elephant. Well, if I was to accept that analogy, which I won't, but if I was to accept that analogy, I'd respond by saying, well, Christians are the only ones who, by way of the elephant's choice, actually speak elephant. They might be reaching out blindly and touching something, but we are speaking to him and he's hearing us and he is speaking to us and we are hearing him. It's, it's an incredibly scandalous idea to, to non-Christians, but the, the ironic truth is, is that it's also a scandalous idea in many churches. There are any number of churches where the idea that I'm proclaiming is slammed. It's slammed in the past. It was slammed as enthusiasm. 
and today sometimes labeled as some form of fundamentalism. The gospel actually is not primarily an invitation to come into close personal relationship with the church, although the church is indispensable. The gospel is not primarily an invitation to come into a close personal relationship with the Bible, although the Bible is indispensable. Rather, it is the gift of the Holy Spirit that makes the relationship offered in the gospel qualitatively different, unique, qualitatively different to anything else on earth. Now, the Bible actually does not use words such as close personal relationship. In fact, the New Testament does not even use the word relationship with reference to God and humanity. Nevertheless, the idea of close personal relationship is everywhere in the New Testament, such as in our Revelation reading today. It's just by way of of different words. And the right response, the way to accept that invitation, is repentance. A complete and total surrendering to Christ as Lord in order to also know him as Savior. Something that we'll look at more in more detail later on in this series. So that's the first idea. The gospel calls for a personal response. The second idea that is really worth knowing about is PSA. Now, PSA stands for the Pharmaceutical Society of Australia, or the Public Service Association, or the Public Schools Association, or perhaps it stands for prostate-specific antigen, um, or any number of other things, depending on where you work and what you've got your mind on. But in certain circles... And in our context today, PSA stands for Penal Substitutionary Atonement. Penal. On the cross, Jesus took the penalty for us. As a matter of law, he was punished. And he received the punishment we deserved. Substitutionary. Jesus took the punishment for our sin in our place. He was our substitute. Atonement, a sacrifice made so much as to pay back a debt. There was something that needed to be done. Atonement, also a gift or sacrifice made so as to appease anger. On the cross, Jesus paid the price for our sin, turning aside the wrath of God. God's fierce and holy, righteous indignation at human evil. Turning aside from us the wrath of God by taking it upon himself. Now, again, perhaps for many of us sitting here today, it might come as a surprise or indeed as a shock to hear that penal substitutionary atonement is a fiercely contested idea in theological debate. In terms of European Christianity, PSA has been utterly rejected by any number of Christians, by any number of churches, by whole denominations. And that's been happening for centuries now. 
The reason is relatively simple. Talking about the wrath of God, indeed talking about punishment and retributive justice, that makes civilized Europeans very uncomfortable. Of course, I mean, people from southern Mediterranean countries or even from them across the Atlantic, they can get angry and wave their hands around and get red in the face. But English gentlemen, and German aristocracy as well for that matter, do not get upset. Stiff up a lip, old boy. And surely God is a nice, polite English gentleman wearing a tweed jacket. A nice God would just forgive and not punish anybody. He wouldn't be so vulgar as to get upset. At least not at us. Because we're so nice. More recently, and closer to home, substitution has come under close scrutiny. The phrase Cosmic child abuse is not infrequently heard in Anglican circles. I recently heard about one of my fellow Anglican clergy who said, she said that she felt physically sick whenever whenever anyone suggested that PSA might be true. The crux of the problem, if you'll forgive the pun, no pun intended, the crux of the problem actually is articulated by Proverbs 17.15, which says... Acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent, the Lord detests them both. The argument against PSA is thus that if we consider ourselves sinners and guilty, which we most certainly do, and if we consider Jesus to be innocent and sinless, which we most certainly do, then the cross is the greatest miscarriage of justice ever in the history of the universe. Indeed, it is something that the Bible says is repugnant to God. Condemning the innocent man, acquitting the guilty. At the other extreme, at the other extreme, there are now various groups who argue that PSA is the gospel and that the gospel is PSA. In other words, the two things are precisely coextensive. Where this idea dominates, you see preachers believing that they haven't preached the gospel until they have yet again articulated penal substitutionary atonement, the same as they did last Sunday. And that as a result, it is imperative to find penal substitutionary atonement in every text, in every psalm, in every parable, in every song and in every story. The resulting thought logic becomes Contorted, if not highly imaginative. How how can we respond to all of this? What shall we say? Well, the first thing to say is to acknowledge, of course, that PSA is entirely biblical. Penal substitutionary atonement is plainly there. Nothing could be clearer. Penal language, substitutionary language, atonement language, it's all there. Mark 10, 45, John chapter 1, Romans chapter 3, the book of Hebrews, Revelation, not to mention, of course, many, many Old Testament passages prefiguring and predicting. We can, in the light of this, reject the Bible, if we so choose. 
catastrophically stupid thing for Christians to do, but we, we, we cannot kid ourselves that PSA is not plainly taught in Scripture. Alternatively, rather than rejecting the Bible, if penal substitutionary atonement forces us to rethink the nature and character of God, then we must rethink the nature and character of God. But one thing is absolutely for sure, PSA is biblical. Secondly, PSA is just and beautiful. It is the glory of God. But it does not work if we have a weak understanding of who Jesus is. If we pay lip service to the notion that Jesus is the Son of God, but in our hearts take that to be some kind of honorary title, then indeed PSA is cosmic child abuse. One of the least just things that has ever happened. But if we understand the Bible, that Jesus is fully God as well as fully human, fully God with us, then penal substitutionary atonement becomes something awesome, something wonderful. God himself taking upon himself the punishment we deserve just as he told Abraham he would do, just as he told Isaiah and Jeremiah and any number of others, taking upon himself the punishment for our covenant unfaithfulness. Thirdly, penal substitutionary atonement is at the center of the gospel, but it is not the whole. It is possible to preach the gospel without mentioning PSA. For example, Peter does not mention or explain penal substitutionary atonement in his preaching in the book of Acts, not to the crowds in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost when 3,000 people were baptized and came to faith in Christ, nor to the household of Cornelius when that man and all of his family, friends, and staff were baptized in the Holy Spirit. And yet, on the other hand... PSA is indeed at the heart of the gospel. It's the means by which we have forgiveness of sins and the promise of eternal life. Given that Jesus is the light of the world and that the cross is the wisdom of God and that all wisdom is cross-shaped wisdom and that Jesus is the meaning and purpose of everything, I try hard to follow Paul in knowing nothing but Christ and Christ crucified. And therefore, in taking every legitimate opportunity as a preacher to explain and proclaim penal substitutionary atonement, an opportunity, indeed, that I've taken this morning. You can preach the gospel without mentioning penal substitutionary atonement. But if you've explained penal substitutionary atonement, you have most certainly preached the gospel. How did we get here? Today we've considered calling that people hear the voice of God as human beings speak the gospel. That's given us occasion to think about what the gospel is. Because we'll need to know. We'll need to know and tell the gospel. Because we're praying that our loved ones 
might too know the love of Christ and hear God's call. We're, we're praying that they will hear his voice as they listen to us speaking the good news. So let's pray. I'm going to pray a prayer that um, uh, if you've heard God's call for the first time this morning, this is a good prayer to pray in your hearts as you hear me pray it. But it's also, as we see from its context in Revelation, a very good prayer to pray for any Christian at any time. Jesus says, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Father, thank you for calling me through Jesus Christ, your Son. Please forgive me for my sin, any and all attempts at self-rule, the times I've ignored you and gone my own way. Please forgive me. Please come into my heart. Please may we indeed share sweet and intimate friendship table fellowship, eating together, you with me and me with you. Please fill me with the Holy Spirit. And thank you for the sure promise of forgiveness and of eternal life with you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.